I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Coming up, we'll discuss how to create and manage gardens and landscapes that can thrive, or at least survive, a hotter and drier climate on the Front Range in the years ahead. Our guests are Fred Berkelhammer. He's an arborist and owner of Berkelhammer Tree Experts, Inc., and Dave Sutherland, a field naturalist, an environmental educator, and a huge proponent of natural plant gardening. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a report by Benita Lee about research that was recently published online in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Portable desalination units usually contain high-pressure pumps and filters that remove salts and particles from seawater. This requires a lot of energy and replacement filters. MIT scientists decided to build a portable unit that uses electricity instead of filters to desalinate seawater. It's the size of a suitcase and needs less power than a cell phone charger. It can also be powered by a portable solar panel. Over years of research, the MIT team pioneered the filterless desalination technique called ion concentration polarization, or ICP. The ICP process applies an electrical field to membranes placed above and below the water as it runs through a channel. The membranes repel positively or negatively charged particles, which include salt, bacteria, and viruses. The particles are collected into a second stream of water and later discarded. To test the device, scientists brought the desalination unit to Carson Beach in Boston. The feed tube that draws in seawater was tossed from the shore into the ocean. After pressing a button and waiting 30 minutes, the unit produced about a cup's worth of clear drinking water. Scientists say the water quality exceeded World Health Organization guidelines. The unit is a bit slow. It takes an hour to desalinate about a third of a liter of seawater, but the scientists are working on increasing production rates. They hope that people can one day use the desalination unit in remote communities or in emergency situations, such as during a natural disaster or a military operation. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. You just heard about water on Earth. Now here's a story about water on the moon and how those watery sources separated by a great distance across space might be related. Searching for and finding water on the moon is necessary for the planned return of humans to the moon, potentially for long-term habitation. Water is important not just for drinking water and growing plants and greenhouses, but also as a source of hydrogen and oxygen for fuel and breathing. Because it is very expensive to launch materials and transport to the moon, it is highly cost-efficient to find water in place. It is generally assumed that the water found on the moon, typically as ice mixed in material near and below the surface, was delivered by comets and asteroids hitting the moon, and even from the solar wind. 
The solar wind carries oxygen and hydrogen ions, which may have been captured and combined on the moon as water molecules. Now, new research, recently published in the journal Nature by scientists from the University of Alaska, indicates that hydrogen and oxygen ions escaping from Earth's upper atmosphere could be one of the sources of the known lunar water. As the moon passes through the tail of the Earth's magnetosphere, hydrogen and oxygen ions are driven into the moon's surface. The ions then combine to create lunar permafrost and other forms of water. This accumulation of water-forming ions on the moon has been going on for over 3 billion years. These results mean that the water that future astronauts find and drink at a planned base camp on the moon's south pole could actually be water that originated many eons ago on Earth. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Spring is blooming on the Front Range, and it's a time when many of us are digging in the soil in our yard and planting vegetables, trees, shrubs. Many of us wish we'd watered our trees long before this week's short burst of much-needed rain, however. But despite yesterday being the wettest day of the calendar year in Boulder and elsewhere on the Front Range, much of the state is still in a drought. In fact, climatologists say that the American West is the driest it's been in more than 1,200 years, and the so-called mega-drought will likely persist for many more years. These conditions will keep shrinking the state's water supply, which is already very short, and they'll add to the risk of wildfires, for starters. Our two guests today will bring, us, will bring this context right down to earth, in fact, down to the soil in our gardens, and show us how we, residents, can better prepare our homes and community common spaces for a hotter, drier future, and have beautiful and bountiful gardens. And they'll discuss how we and our neighborhoods can become part of the solution, for instance, giving pollinators a leg up and growing trees and shrubs that make great, great habitat for birds and so many other creatures. So in the studio with us, we have Fred Berkelhammer. He's an arborist and owner of Berkelhammer Tree Experts, Inc. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome back to the show, I should say. And Dave Sutherland, he's a field naturalist and an environmental educator and a huge proponent of natural plant gardening. Until recently, he worked for many years with Open Space Mountain Parks. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So I'm going to start with you, Dave, since you've done so much work both in the public sphere and now more individually and, and privately looking at landscapes and gardens and sort of what's appropriate for a particular ecosystem. Give us a lay of the land, kind of literally, like how the ecosystem in this area looks now relative to whatever the baseline be, probably pre-European settlers. Sure. Um, if we were to get in a time machine and say go back 
700 years or something to before the time when European settlers came here. The ecosystem in the Front Range would have been uh, prairie out on the plains and then Ponderosa and Douglas fir forests up in the mountains. And then when the European settlers arrived in the mid to late 1800s, they brought all kinds of plants with them, many from the eastern United States and many from Europe. And let them all loose in the ecosystem here, and many of those plants have then just gone gangbusters uh, and started to undermine the local Colorado ecosystem. So now if I go on a walk up at Chautauqua Meadows, say, mostly what I see are non-native pasture grasses and uh, pretty severely compromised, I almost say uh, ruined ecosystem. It, it just brings me to tears to see what's happened. Well, and here's some beloved spot that so many people come to from far outside of Boulder and we all love, but you're saying not only it's not what it used to be, but it's a very shrunken It's ecosystem. a shrunken and compromised ecosystem. And um, I, I frequently think of the uh, native plants that grow in an area as being sort of like the foundation of an ecosystem. It's like the foundation of your house. Um, and so all of the other living things in an ecosystem are supported by the plants that are there at the base of the ecosystem. Mm. And over eons, a lot of the animals that live in an ecosystem evolve very specialized, unique relationships with a lot of the plants. You know, they need each other. And then uh, when you bring the non-native plants in, they start chipping away at that foundation and pushing out the native plants. And when you lose the native plants, then the uh, insect or the other kind of animal that had evolved a relationship with that plant doesn't have a food source or a place to live anymore. So I'm kind of watching ecosystems like up at Chautauqua kind of teetering as all of these non-native plants, these pasture grasses, these escaped horticultural plants, uh, non-native trees start taking over the ecosystem, pushing the natives out, and then the whole not the whole native uh, animal ecosystem that goes along with it starts teetering because it's losing its foundation. So it's not just from some would say overpopulation, like such heavy use of those areas, particularly in the Chautauqua area. That's less what's driving out, say, some native animal species than the actual shift in plant ecology? Well, it's a whole suite of different things happening at, at, at once. But, you know, I, when I walk at Chautauqua or just about any of the open space trails anymore, um, and I see all of the non-native plants that have taken over the ecosystem there, it makes me think of like a silent nuclear bomb going off in the ecosystem that you have to be a botanist to hear. Um, Whoa, uh, a botanist would be able to go up there and say, oh my gosh, I walked for 30 minutes and I saw four native plants. But most people who are out for a hike aren't aren't seeing it that way. If they, if they don't recognize the plants that are growing there, they're not seeing the damage to the ecosystem that's been done by all of the non-natives that we've brought in. Boy, and Fred Berkelhammer, I want to ask you, as someone who's intimately familiar and has interacted with trees for, for decades on the Front Range and probably elsewhere, what's your sense of literally kind of the lay of the land, how the ecosystem looks now relative to, shall we say, centuries ago or even not that long ago and for better, largely for worse? <laughs> well, we were just talking about what trees are native to this area and, and Dave just mentioned several of them and uh, 
you know, most of the trees I deal with every day are not native to the area. Such as what? Just give a few examples. Oh, oaks, most oaks. I, I don't know if there were gamble oaks in, in Boulder 700 years ago. I don't, I don't think so. They're, grow, they're a native tree farther south in Colorado, down by Castle Rock. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. pinyon pines are, are from down by Buena Vista and, and south. Um, there are almost none that I deal with every day that were, that were here. Um, and this gets into what's what's becoming native, and 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 there are a lot of trees that have been here for you know a century or, or or slightly more that have kind of become native. Some of which are definitely squeezing out the natives, like ash. And uh, ash is an example of one that's squeezing out the natives, and it's of course a special case. But um, other ones that clog up the riparian environments, Russian olive, and um, so. You know, it's philosophical, and 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 what do we? It, to me, it's um, more a question of what do we need spiritually as humans at this point. If we went completely back the way things were, I think we'd really miss our trees, and even though they don't technically belong here. Interesting. Yeah, Dave Southern. Well, um, I'm a proponent of gardening with native plants and trees, but um, there's a huge distinction between uh, non-native plants that are invasive and non-native plants that behave. And so I have Mm. non-native trees growing in my yard. I have some non-native plants in my flower garden that are well-behaved. They're not going to get out of my garden and spread to public lands and wild lands and off into the open space. So that's what you mean by well-behaved. They well stay behaved. contained they stay even if they're not contained. native, they're benign. And yeah. so there are tons of plants, including a lot of trees, that aren't native to Colorado. But if you grow them in your yard, you're not putting the ecosystem at risk because that uh, tree, you know, like if it's a bur oak or something like that, it's not going to get out of control and wreck open space. But trees like Russian olives and green ashes and Siberian elms can. Uh, crack willows, they can get out of control. And there are a lot of uh, garden plants that people grow that can do that. They can get out of control and get into the open space lands. Um, so I'm not saying don't grow native plants at all. I'm sorry, I'm saying it's okay to grow some non-natives, but just be very careful about what you pick. And what Fred's talking about are trees that will behave very well in your land and would be a real benefit to your landscape. Yeah, and Fred, I think it's a really interesting point. There are probably gazillion points of view, even among ecologists and biologists, whether it's a philosophical and economic argument, like what does it cost to go back to whatever baseline of the gold, whatever golden era we point to, but landscapes, ecosystems are constantly changing and evolving as are we humans. So I think it's probably worthwhile to talk about what seems to be a definite do not do in this climate. If you're going to be, whether you're, whether you're head of open space mountain parks or starting a new landscape in your garden, what not to do, what seems okay to do, and again, I'm sure there's no golden rule, but what stands out to you, Fred, as definite in this climate as it's changing? What's good to either get rid of or definitely plant? Right, I think we've covered... <clears throat> Some of the worst uh, tree species, the and, and the uh, even the landscape industry is caught up to this by now. Um, I I favor several oaks, and Dave just mentioned burr, which is if you go to the corner, I think it's twenty third or twenty second and Bluff. There's a gigantic tree on the north side of the road that spreads clear to the other side. That's a burr oak. Oh, yeah. There's another one at Thirteenth and Baseline. 
these grow up to be majestic uh, trees. They grow native in, uh, I've seen them in Kansas uh, in the forest. Um, another one is chinkapin oak. If you go to Kansas, you'll see them growing. This is a fairly tough environment for trees, but um, they're both pretty drought tolerant, chinkapin. Um, it's a spreading oak that turns uh, yellow in the fall. I'm a big fan of Schumard oaks. They're fairly drought tolerant, and they get to be gigantic shade trees. They're strong. They mm. turn red in the fall. There's one opposite the uh, tea house on 13th Street, oh, yeah, a little bit beautiful. north. And heritage oak, which is a cross, uh, I think, between English and burr, is a new hybrid that's uh, or a new cross that's really a great tree. Um, and there are others. Um, so I like oaks. Hackberries are uh, native. Um, they tend to be small. You see them up in the valleys in uh, Chautauqua or the the uh, the draws. Um, Kentucky coffee tree is a great drought-tolerant tree. Uh, uh, golden rain tree, they tend to break when it snows in September around here, which it does snow <laughs> in it September does. and May around here. Um and there's some oaks that have been traditionally planted that all of a sudden you don't want to plant. Like, for instance, uh, uh, seedless ashes, uh, you know, they wouldn't be invasive, but they're, uh, of course, going to die from emerald ash borer if they're not treated. Lindens for oh, years. Oh, well, so to that point, we'll get a little more to the pests and emerald ash borer in a bit, but sounds like let them go then if these are some of the non-natives you're talking about that aren't good yeah. ashes to have. Oh, let them go. You mean don't plant them, or, no, or? In, let them die? Because you're saying, of course, we're treating them. You're treating them. Many oh, others oh. For... Um, I think you should remove your ashes uh-huh. if you're not re- if you're not treating them for a variety of reasons. Like what? Well, they become brittle uh, when an ash dies. Normally, it becomes stronger for a few years, but with emerald ash borer, it becomes incredibly brittle. And we found this out because arborists were were being dropped out of trees in the Upper Midwest, <laughs> where emerald ash borer hit first. So they become dangerous. Um, so you don't want to let them just go naturally unless they're out, you know, on a big field. Um, oh, they're so gorgeous. Yeah, that's really that's a shame. So are a lot of things. That... That's so overplanted, and that's uh, such a per- large percentage of our, our canopy. It's... Yeah, and Dave Sutherland, you're a naturalist here. What are your thoughts? I absolutely second what Fred's saying about um, getting rid of the green ash trees or letting them go. Uh, we have a lot of green ashes providing shade in Boulder and in the Front Range, but it is not a native sustainable tree here. They're really invasive. Every year I have to rip tons and tons of green ashling seedlings out of my garden that spread with these. They have these little winged seeds that blow long distances and uh, get into gardens and blow up and down creeks, and then you have this terrible spreading problems. So I'm, I'm actually, I would urge people, get rid of your green ashes, cut them down and replace them with a tree that's much more sustainable and less invasive here. Like what? A couple examples of good, either of you, that would be good because, right, this is a big percentage of the tree canopy in Boulder County and their gorgeous great shade trees. Well, everything that Fred just said about the oaks is, uh-huh. is, is great. They're, they're maybe not native here, but they won't get out of control and they will provide great shade and they will last for years and years and years and be very sustainable in this climate. And Fred? <laughs> um, yeah, I pretty much gave pretty my much list, did. but uh, I think a seedless ash is, is, is okay to, to treat and not mm-hmm. a threat to the ecosystems. 
So I want to take a little uh, station break for those who are joining late. You're listening to How on Earth on KGNU in Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, and Nederland, and anywhere on KGNU.org. I'm your host, Susan Moran, and I'm talking with Fred Berkelhammer. He's an arborist and president of Berkelhammer Tree Experts, and with Dave Sutherland, a field naturalist and environmental educator. So I want to drill down a bit more to the garden level. And obviously we're talking about public and private, but for now, I think for, for listeners, it'd be great to, since we're in the planting season, to talk more about that. But first, just want to address what seems an elephant in the room or one of several when we talk about water scarcity and water consumption and how to plant and manage for a hotter, drier climate. When in Colorado, agriculture uses nearly 90% of the water budget, you know, growing alfalfa and other super water-consumptive crops and obviously others that are really important economically and, and otherwise, whereas cities and industry together consume about 10%. So first I want to ask you, Dave, do you think there really is much of a dent that people, we, neighborhoods, cities, can make in consuming less and saving more and planting accordingly? Oh, sure. Um, you know, every little bit helps. It's like, you know, I, I remember growing up, we were taught to turn off your light, lights in the house when you weren't using them. Was it having a huge effect on the budget, uh, the electrical budget of the nation? No. Was it helping? Yes. And, you know, it's, I guess I think of that, the old adage about drop a drop wearing away a rock over time. Every little bit helps. And if you can grow a landscape that doesn't require any supplemental water, you are helping. And in part, you may be helping preserve some of that water for agriculture to make sure that farmers can continue to have water because you're not using some of the water that they need. Right. Um, so I want to drill down a bit to the garden level. Dave, you've done a lot of work with the city when you were with the city and, and subsequently and the pollinator-friendly planting. Talk a little bit about the city program. I think it's more broad covering well, the county as well and the mm -hmm. pollinator corridor supporting the um, the city of Boulder has a pollinator network pro uh, project going on right now that citizens can get involved in. In fact, we're encouraging ci citizens to get involved and to start looking at their landscapes as habitat and say, what can I grow in my garden here that will support the local ecosystem. A lot of the uh, a lot of the focus is on pollinators, particularly native pollinators, native bees that have frequently developed these intense relationships with native plants. But in addition to the pollinators, a lot of plants that you can grow in your garden provide a food source for larvae. They're host plants for butterflies and host plants for bees and so on. And one of the reasons that we're seeing, uh, for example, monarch butterflies declining is because people are removing all of the milkweed host plant that the larva of the monarch butterfly needs to survive. Mm. So the idea behind the pollinator network is let's plant plants in our neighborhoods, in our gardens, and create networks kind of like uh, filaments of linked pollinator gardens that cross neighborhoods that allow the native insects to have a place where they can find uh, forage, they can find host plants for themselves, they can find plants to pollinate. A lot of the native insects don't move very far in their lifetime. So the idea is if we get people on every block of the city growing a bunch of these plants, it'll provide kind of a, a linkages. 
And people can find a lot of resources online at www.beboulder.org. And that's B spelled with two E's. So beboulder.org, there are a lot of uh, resources about how to grow great pollinator plants in your yard and uh, how to grow native Colorado plants that support this ecosystem. And I'll also link to some of the resources, both yours and the cities, so people can Mm -hmm. get involved. And what do the data show so far? I know the cities program started... A few years ago, someone's probably keeping data on, actually, is there more of an abundance? And do these so-called corridors or pearls on a string... Mm-hmm. Pearls on a really string. Help. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, they do help. Uh, they particularly help with the native insects. And we've had a lot of... Uh, there's been sort of a lot of, if you will, buzz about <laughs> colony collapse disorder in honeybees. But honeybees are not native. They were introduced in the 1600s from Europe. And so there's been a lot less research and study on what's happened to the native bee populations, but uh, they have been plummeting. And so what we can do to um, try to bring their habitat back is is huge. Uh, we do know that native bees are frequently more effective pollinators than honeybees, but because they're not economically important, they haven't received nearly as much study and research. I think people are just starting to... to look at that and say, oh my gosh, you know, we've been neglecting our native bees and native pollinators. We got to do something about that. And this is a really good time for people to replant, right, Fred? And well, Fred, for starters, whether it's a tree or other things that can help give pollinators and others like that and also give us shade and beauty. This is a great time of year to plant trees. Um, I just want to, if I can quickly, um, Mention that you uh, ash trees can be treated, and, and I agree with Dave. You should probably have a seedless ash, uh, but uh, you can keep your ash alive without poisoning uh, honeybees or other pollinators. And ash trees have uh, flowers. They uh, bees gather pollen, and this is in the in the scientific record from ash trees. So um, you can treat with azadiractin products and they are not toxic to to honey adult honeybees are unavailable to the larvae so oh, they're based on what the azadiractin it's a neem seed extract azadiractin mm-hmm. so at least you can prolong their life without can, causing absolutely more damage yep yep well we're out of time i see this is definitely a fodder for a call-in show in the future but thank you so much that was fred berkelhammer an arborist and owner of berkelhammer tree experts thanks fred you're welcome and Dave Sutherland, a naturalist and environmental educator focusing on native plants and gardening. Thanks and we'll put a me. link to his public talks. Thanks so much, Dave. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and engineered by Shannon Young. Thanks to How on Earth's Benita Hill and Joel Parker for their headline contributions. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Moonwater. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.